Hopefully some of you guys can relate to that. Uh, this is going to sound like, like a bit of a strange question, um, but have any of you ever spent any amount of time just kind of like watching middle schoolers? You're giggling, so I feel like you know where I'm going with this. There, there's something, let's just say, special about that age. Where, where you spend any amount of time watching them, observing them, and it is only a matter of time before the thought comes across your mind, huh, I wonder, I wonder what's going on up there. Now, now for those of you that, that have middle schoolers at home, this is ringing home all too well, or maybe you're about to enter that season of your life, maybe you just exit that season of your life, but even if you don't have a middle schooler at home, which probably describes most of us, certainly describes me, chances are you can probably think back to middle school and, and probably more memories, more decisions than you would probably like to admit where you look back and you think, what in the heck was I thinking? Like seriously, what was going through my head? Uh, this past weekend, I was actually speaking at a winter retreat um, for like four or 500 middle school and high school students. And there were all these times, like I was preparing for this message, thinking about this. There were all these times where I would watch these middle school students in particular do things. And I'm sitting there going, what are they thinking right now? Like seriously, like, that seems like a really odd choice in, in this moment. In fact, for a number of years, I actually worked at a camp. Um, and every single summer, you know, we'd have hundreds, in fact, actually thousands of kids kind of flow through the grounds every single week. You know, you get new kids come in, the old kids would leave. And it seemed like there was at least a couple of moments uh, every single week where I would watch a kid do something and then I would immediately charge over to them. I couldn't bite my tongue and I'd like grab them by the arms. I'd look at them and say, what are you thinking? Right? You'd ask that question. What were you thinking? Have you lost your mind? And nine times out of 10, the response that I would get back from these middle schoolers in particular was three words. I don't know. I don't know. And here's the thing. Parents, when your middle school child says that to you, they're not lying. They really don't know. In fact, they do things all the time without even giving it the littlest semblance of thought. They, they, they don't think at all. In fact, they just do. Back when I was in middle school, my best friend was a guy by the name of Judson. And Judson lived uh, within bike riding distance of my house. And most of the time, I wanted to go play over at his house because I just felt like he had more fun stuff to do it over at his house. And so we go over to his house, and one of our favorite Saturday activities was he lived in this little subdivision that maybe had 30 houses, but attached to it was this new development where they were constantly building new homes. And so on Saturdays, we'd jump on our bikes and we'd tell his mom probably that we were going like on a bike ride or something. And we would go to these houses that were under construction and just have a ball. Now, not like terrible things that you're maybe thinking through in your head. We wouldn't vandalize them or anything, but we'd like ride our bikes through the houses. We'd pretend that they were ours. We'd grab the wood and we'd go make jumps out in the back with the dirt and stuff, like all these things that middle school boys do. Well, one day in particular, we went uh, into this house and, and on the ground, we felt like we had found like the holy grail of items. We found a strip of nails that would go into a nail gun. I mean, I had never seen these before. I'd seen them in movies and stuff, but I was like, this is pretty sweet. And without any thought whatsoever, I, I can't really remember, honestly, whose idea it was, we got the strip of nails and we went and we took them out into the road and perfectly propped them up and then we rode away. And then about eight hours later, I'm laying in bed going to sleep that night and I, all of a sudden it hits me. I'm like, oh no, that was a bad idea. Why, 
Why did we do that? And all of a sudden, all these worst case scenarios are running through my head. I'm thinking about like the 80 year old woman that's gonna drive by, pop all four tires, spin out of control, lose control of the vehicle, the car's gonna burst into the flames and like I'm gonna be under investigation because I decided to put nails out in the middle of the road. And I look back at that and I think, what was I thinking? But again, that's just the thing. I wasn't thinking, I just did. We looked at each other and we said, let's do this. No thought whatsoever. Now. As a middle schooler, this whole phenomenon that I'm describing, this whole idea of doing things and, and we don't really understand why we do them, it manifests itself in some pretty obvious and some pretty glaring, frankly, in some pretty dumb ways. But, but here's the thing, and this is really what we're going to be focusing in on here for these next couple of weeks. We don't really get much better at this as adults. It's not like this just suddenly goes away, like it suddenly disappears. Because we still do things, I mean, let's be honest, you don't have to admit this, but I'll admit it for us. We do things all the time as adults, where we're almost immediately after doing something, we're going, what the heck was that? Why would I decide to do that? But it usually happens to be in this far less demonstrative, in this far less obvious manner, or maybe we've just gotten better at hiding it. Maybe we've gotten better at just kind of accepting it. For instance, maybe you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off and, and without thinking at all, you, you mumble some pretty terrible things under your breath, right? Or, or maybe you don't even mumble it, just some thoughts go through your head. And like right afterward, you're, you're going, ugh, what was that? Like, like where did that thought come from? Or maybe you've literally told your children like a hundred times not to do that one thing. Like literally a hundred times is no exaggeration. You tell them all the time and they do it for the hundred and first time and you're a little short on sleep that night and you lose it. I mean, you completely lose your cool. You're yelling at your kid. Now they're sitting in timeout. They're bawling their eyes out. You shut the door walking away and you're going, that was bad. I really wish I would not have just done that right now. Or, or, or maybe it's like late at night and you're scrolling through, you know, just kind of flipping channels and you come across something that you know you shouldn't be watching, but 10 minutes later, you're like, I am still watching this. Seriously, what is wrong with me? When you think about it, we do things all the time. We react, we say, we shoot a look that we almost immediately regret. That if we take a quick second to kind of reflect on our behavior, we look back and we think, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why do I continue to do this thing that I know I am going to regret? Why do I continue to do this thing that I know is not what is best for me and certainly not best for the people around me? And as we're gonna see here over the next seven weeks throughout the series, you don't have to live with that stuff, nor should you live with that stuff. We don't have to take on this attitude of, a, oh well, I guess that's just who I am. We don't have to take on this attitude of, you know, oh well, you know, maybe that's not as big of a deal as I maybe once thought because other people don't seem to see it as big of an issue. So much, so much of what was once unacceptable has become increasingly acceptable. There's probably certain sin that exists in every single one of our lives that the people closest to us in particular just kind of throw their hands up in the air and say, oh well, that's just kind of who they are. It doesn't seem like they're gonna change at this point. For, for many, many years, my basic thought is it, is it related to sin and really things that I knew that I probably shouldn't do was this. I, I thought saying no to sin means that I miss out. If I said no to sin, it was actually meaning that I was missing out on life. For years and years, I under, operated under this basic assumption that I shouldn't do certain things because it was, well, 
wrong, right? Like the Bible told me it was wrong or people around me seem to think that it was wrong. I shouldn't have sex before marriage. You know, I, I shouldn't get drunk. I shouldn't watch that movie. I, I shouldn't listen to that music. I shouldn't look at pornography. We could go on and on. I shouldn't do these things because they are wrong. And furthermore, and this is digging a, lot, a little bit deeper and I guarantee you that some of you are thinking this way. Furthermore, by not doing those things, I was actually missing out. That the people who never went to church that the people who, who didn't think that these things were as wrong as maybe as I thought that they were wrong, those people were actually having more fun in life. The, the, those people were actually experiencing life, frankly, in a better way. If I'm honest, and again, you don't have to admit to this, but I'll admit this about myself, I wanted to have sex. I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to look at pornography. But for the most part, I abstained from those things because they were quote-unquote wrong. But, and this is really at the epicenter of following Jesus, and it represents for me, I'm not going to say it's going to be the case for you, but for me, it represents one of the most profound discoveries, one of the most profound revelations that I have experienced in this whole faith journey. Once I got to this point that I realized that saying yes to sin actually holds you back. That saying yes to sin is actually something that is holding me back, that is actually hurting me. You're actually holding yourself back. By saying yes to the sex now, you are hurting you are damaging your future relationship with your spouse. But by looking at pornography, you are damaging the intimacy that you will experience with your spouse. And that's not a Christian thing. That is just a fact scientific thing. But, but by getting drunk, I am more likely to make decisions that everybody agrees, Christian or not, are probably not a good idea. See, see God doesn't nudge us towards certain things and away from other decisions because it's the right or the wrong thing to do, like so many of us think. So you, you guys, it is so, so much better than that. It's because God has something better for you. And we're gonna continue to dive into this, and you might not be totally convinced of that right now, but I'm telling you, that's the case. He has your best interest in mind. He knows what sinning leads to. He knows what those decisions lead to, and he doesn't want you to lead a life that is marked by regret, that is marked by complacency. He knows where the sex leads. He knows where the gossiping leads. He knows where the laziness leads. He knows where the lies lead. He knows where the judging leads, and he's going, if you would just listen to me on this stuff, I'm telling you, your life would be so so much better for it. And you guys, this is the best part because this is the case whether you call yourself a Jesus follower or not because again, this is a human being. This is a life thing. Jesus is looking at us saying, if you listen to me on this stuff, I'm telling you, it will make your life better and it will make you better at life. So even if you never embrace everything that we're talking about here on Sunday mornings, even if you never place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you still ought to pay attention to this stuff because undeniably so, it will make your life better and make you better at life. Jesus is for you. And if you ever doubt that, remember that he died on a cross for you. He's going, trust me on this stuff. If you stop living in sexual sin, if you stop lying, if you stop gossiping, if you stop being so freaking lazy, if you get better at controlling your anger, your life, take God out of it for a minute, your life will be better for it. And so this is what we're gonna be exploring here throughout this series. Why do we continue to do these things that we know are holding us back? Why do we continue to do these things that constantly lead to regret? How do we break these habits that for a lot of us, if we're honest, are years 
maybe a lifetime in the making. Now, fortunately for us, this is not a new issue for people. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Paul who wrote better than like half of the New Testament. The New Testament is the second half of our Bibles. He wrote better than half of it through a series of letters to, to these early Christian churches, and we'll talk more about those here in just a second. But it's important that we have a little bit of an understanding of who Paul was and where he came from. Paul, prior to being named Paul, was actually referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a fire-breathing, Christian-hating Pharisee. A Pharisee was a sect of Judaism that practiced this really, really strict adherence to the 613 laws that would have been contained within the Torah, within the Jewish scriptures. And he, better than anyone else, would follow those laws to A.T. He was the poster boy for the Pharisees. And so in comes this whole new movement known as Christianity. Saul looks up at at heaven and he says, don't worry, God, I got this. And he makes it his mission to destroy Christianity. He says, I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to making sure that Christianity does not live on as a movement. And he does it. And he was a type A personality. He starts killing Christians. He starts arresting Christians. He starts persecuting Christians. But then through a series of events that only God could have orchestrated, the very movement that Paul was seeking to destroy, that Saul was seeking to destroy, he is now on the front line spreading the message of Christianity all around the ancient world. In fact, the reason that we all know who Jesus is The reason that we all know what Christianity is as a movement is because of Paul. So Paul goes around and he starts planning all these little churches all around the ancient world. He goes, travels all over. He'd spend a good chunk of time in each one of these places and then he would depart. And because communication back then isn't what it is today, he would frequently write these letters back to these churches that he had started. Sometimes as a form of encouragement, other times as a form of discipline because he had heard some rumors about these churches, but he often wrote these letters. Now, one of these letters that he wrote is this letter that we now refer to as Romans. And to best of our knowledge, we don't think that Paul actually ever visited Rome, but to Despite that, there's all these little Christian house churches that are popping up all over the place. And biblical scholars would estimate that there may be even thousands, but at least hundreds of Christians living throughout the city of Rome. Now, the reason that's a big deal is because back in the first century, if you were a Christian living in Rome, that was not a safe place to be. You would face persecution. It wasn't something that you wanted to go out and tell people about. Like you, there were some serious, serious consequences, but yet all these Christians are appearing all over the city of Rome. And in this letter, to to the Romans that Paul writes. He kind of dives into this whole topic that we're going to be talking about here throughout this series. And I guarantee you this verse that I'm about to show you, it applies to your life to some extent. So if you've ever thought that the Bible is old, if you've ever thought that the Bible is outdated and it just doesn't apply to our 21st century lives, I guarantee you I'm about to prove you wrong because to some extent this verse, it describes you. Now, on a side note here, maybe you don't have a life verse. Like, Christians have this weird thing where they say, like, I have a life verse. Like, they're like a life verse. And you're like, what the heck is that? Okay, it's like one verse that Christians will pluck out of the entire Bible, and they'll be like, that's my verse. That, that verse just describes my life, I guess. It's kind of a weird thing. I'm poking fun at Christians here. I don't know. But anyway, if you don't have a life verse and you've kind of felt left out, look no further. I'm about to give you your life verse. You can take it home. You can put it on some pallet wood. It'll be so original. Nobody's thought of that. Are you ready for this? Here we go. I do not understand what I do. I do not understand what I do. And everybody can relate to that, right? As I talked about when I first got up here, you do not have to look back to your middle school years for this to ring true. Chances are every single person in this room within the last week, shoot, probably within the last 24 hours, you have done something where almost immediately after doing that thing, you say to yourself, you look yourself in the mirror and you go, you idiot. 
Why did you do that? Why did you eat that? Why did you call him? Why did you call her? Why did you hit snooze? Why did you say yes? Why did you say no? Why would you ever agree to that? Why did you buy more of those? Why did you do that again? For the life of me, I do not understand what I do. So, for the rest of our time here together, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the, the rest of what Paul kind of had to say on this subject here in his letter to the Romans. But before we go there, th- th- there's a question that I think is definitely worth asking. In fact, it's a question that kind of rings central to this whole conversation that we're going to be having. You ready for it? Why don't you do what you want to do? Think about that. Why don't you do what, what you know what you want to do? Or, or I could ask it this way. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? Why is it that what what comes so incredibly natural to us typically stands in direct opposition to where God ultimately wants to take us? Now, you might be sitting here this morning and you're at a place in this whole faith journey. And by the way, I'm completely sympathetic to this and I'm so glad that you're sitting in this seat today. But you might be at a place right now where you're like... I don't really care what God wants for my life. In fact, I'm not even sure that God exists. I'm just kind of on the front lines exploring this stuff. I I certainly don't care about some guy named Paul that was walking the earth thousands of years ago. And, And I get that. And I hope and I pray that eventually you do indeed get to a point where you actually care about that. But, but here's what I do know. Here's what I'm absolutely certain of. You do care about you. And though your actions might suggest otherwise from time to time, you ultimately want what is best for you. And though you might not care yet about what God ultimately desires for your life, you do care. You do indeed care about your desires. And this might be a tough pill to swallow. This is going to require you to suck up a little bit of pride and, you know, to kind of admit this. But I know that this is true for your life. What you naturally desire is in conflict with what you ultimately desire. Which is why so much of what Paul has to say here, again, it's not a churchy thing. It's not a Christian thing. I'm telling you, this is a human being. This is a life thing. And believe it or not, Jesus wants to make your life better. And he wants to make you better at life. He, whether you totally believe it or not, has your best interest in mind. And so Paul continues. He has more to say on on this subject. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And we look at this and we think, well, Paul, get your act together. What kind of an idiot would over and over do things that they don't want to do and not do the things that they want to do? I mean, come on, Paul, just pull it together, but not so fast. As we all know, it's not that easy. He continues. He says, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law, the law is good. Now, again, this is where it's important that we understand, again, a little bit of that background with Paul. Again, Paul was the poster boy for the Pharisees. There were 613 laws, and he was better at keeping those laws than anyone else. But try as hard as he might, as good as he was at following those laws, and arguably better than anybody that has ever walked the face of the earth, try as hard as he might, he still fell short. He he still wasn't perfect. Now, I doubt in this room there's a single person that's trying to keep up with the law, that you're trying to follow the 613 laws contained within the Torah. But every single one of us has this thing inside of our heads called a conscience that instinctively steers us towards what is right and away from what is wrong. And try as hard as you might. Wouldn't you know it, sometimes you don't do a very good job at listening to that little thing called a conscience. 
He continues, he says, for I have the desire, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot, I cannot carry it out. I mean, we want to. It's inside of us. We really want to do what is good, but try as hard as we might, we still seem to screw up. And then he continues belaboring the point. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It's like, okay, Paul, we get it at this point. Like, you don't need to keep driving this home. You just seem to keep taking these words and twisting them and kind of putting them in a new way. I mean, maybe this is his way of kind of like making sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand that we're in this together, that you're not the only one that struggles with this. But Paul, we do have to ask, is there a conclusion to this? Are, Are you arriving at some point or are you just kind of trying to make us feel bad about ourselves? And look at what he says. He says, I have discovered this principle of life. That sounds good, doesn't it? The principle of life. Let's see what he says. He says that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. It's like, good grief, Paul. You have got to be freaking kidding me. This is the same thing over and over again. But maybe he's like, okay, I just want to make sure you get it. It's the last time I'm going to say it. And then he wraps this up. He says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war, I mean, think of that imagery, that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. So at this point, Paul begins to talk about the why. Why do we do these things that we know that we shouldn't do? Why don't we do the things that we know that we should do? Now, for those of us that are sitting in this room and and you call yourself a Jesus follower, if you sit here and you call yourself a Christian, we refer to this thing as sin. It's our sinful nature dragging us away from what is best for us and ultimately to what will harm us. Now, you, depending on where you're at on this whole spiritual journey, you might not necessarily think of it as sin, but again, the Jesus followers in this room, we are 100% convinced, in fact, certain of that. And here's the thing about sin. Sin will always pull us away from ultimately and towards naturally. Sin 100% of the time pulls us away from where we ultimately want to be, where God ultimately wants to take us, and towards, towards where we naturally drift. Now, if you read this statement in a vacuum, it doesn't necessarily sound like that bad of a thing, but as we have all experienced, natural, human nature almost exclusively leads to regret. It almost exclusively leads to what is bad for us. It might feel good in the moment, but almost immediately afterwards, we have another one of those moments where we're looking at ourselves in the mirror, we're going, you idiot, why did you do that? Now, this is, again, not not something that that is new to human beings. Obviously, Paul's writing about it thousands of years ago, and in fact, he brings this very topic up throughout his letters that he writes to these various churches. Again, if you read these letters with this filter in mind, it's incredible how often he brings this up. In his letter to the Galatians, he has this to say about it. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. He's like, this stuff is so obvious. Why do you continue fooling yourself? Why do you continue to lie to God? I mean, come on now, this stuff is so, so clear. But as Paul is writing this, he obviously has the benefit of hindsight. Because in the moment, it doesn't always seem that clear. And that's kind of the nature of sin. It feels good in the moment, but eventually it will lead to that moment of regret. He says the results are very, very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. By the way, I I highlighted like these because 
I, I'm not going to assume that like everybody knows this, but oftentimes we look at the Bible as an end-all be-all. We, we, we think, okay, if it's not explicitly written in the Bible, then it must be okay. The Bible is a bunch of freaking examples. And that's why he says, and other sins like these. So if you think you're off the hook, because you're like, my sin wasn't up there, bada bing. No, like these. And to reiterate, and to reiterate all of, almost all of these things, they feel good in the moment. I'm not naive. I'm not some sheltered little church boy. I get it. The sex felt good in the moment. The fling made you feel alive for a minute. Watching it satisfied that quick impulse. Buying it felt like a good decision for a couple of days. Telling your spouse how you really felt, I mean, really letting them have it, I mean, that felt good for that moment. That party was amazing until the next day hit you like a sack of bricks. All of these things feel good for a quick second, but they 100% of the time lead to a moment that if you are honest with yourself, is full of regret. Where you're looking at yourself in the mirror, or, or, or maybe you're fortunate enough to have people in your life that love you well enough, friends and family members that'll look at you and they'll ask you tough questions like, what were you thinking? And you, like Paul, no matter how many times it happens, you're going, I don't understand. I do not understand what I do. So we know it's wrong. We have a sin problem. And so we need a solution. And fortunately, we have one. And, and, and Paul knows it. See, he, like, like maybe a lot of you are feeling this morning, Paul was tired of coming up short. I mean, he worked his tail off to keep up with those 613 laws, but he was constantly coming up short. He was tired of being so frustrated. He was tired of the regrets. He was tired of resenting himself. He was tired of looking back going, why in the heck did I do that? Why in the heck did I not do that? And so Paul wraps up this whole conversation by saying this. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated, dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. By yourself, by your own power, by your own will, this is impossible. Sin will continue winning, which means that regret and remorse will continue to stake a claim in your life. But as Paul says here, thank God. Thank God that he cared enough to get involved. We lose sight of that. God could have just as easily hung an out of order sign on the earth and walked away, but he chose to get involved. Thank God that he sent his one and his only sin to pay the penalty for our mistakes. Thank God that we have a solution. And deep down, I think you know you need that solution because as hard as you have, may have, been, as hard as you have maybe tried, you have been unable to break your sin problem on your own. But this is precisely, precisely what Jesus offers. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and they have crucified them there. When you surrender your life to Jesus, he begins to take over parts of your life that you didn't think imaginable. He begins to take over parts of your life that you are pretty sure you are going to go to your grave with. The poor decisions that you continue to make over and over again, that you have decided to just live with despite the fact that you hate everything about it. Jesus is looking at you saying, give it to me. Trust me, I am in this for you. And if you ever doubt that, again, remember, I died on a cross for you. Jesus wants to take you 
to where you ultimately want to be. He longs for you to stop sacrificing ultimate for immediate. He has such such a better life for you if you would just put your trust in him. He hates that you keep leaning into natural, that you keep leaning into the immediate. He hates that you have had so many mornings that have been filled with regret. And not just, again, come on, for what he ultimately desires, but for what you ultimately desire. And for those of you that, that are skeptical, for those of you that, that, that are in the room right now and you're kind of paying attention, but right up to the point where I told you that Jesus was the solution and then you rolled your eyes and you're like, been there, heard that before. Give me just another second of your time here. What do you have to lose? What, what, what do you have to lose by, by giving Jesus a shot? Because hasn't your life, not mine, not this sermon, hasn't your life demonstrated to you that you are very clearly not winning that, that, that you truthfully haven't really gotten any better at this. You, you've just gotten better at accepting it. You've just gotten better at, at embracing it or maybe even hiding it. And Jesus is telling you, nail it to the cross with me. He's saying, stop leaning into these things that come natural to you because I want to take you to where you ultimately want to be. Because if you're anything like me, You are tired of allowing sin to win. You are tired of doing those things that you don't want to do and not ending up where you ultimately want to be. You're you're, you're tired of resenting yourself. And so for the rest of the series, we're going to explore some of these specific sins that seem to so frequently grab a hold of our lives. Again, whether you are a Christian or not, lying, gossiping, lust, anger, laziness, envy, And discover not only practically how do we overcome these things, but maybe even more importantly, why that should even be a priority to you. And again, if if you're skeptical of this, I I promise you, one more last, one last thing to say here and then I I will get off the stage. If you're skeptical of this, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I don't buy it. If if you're listening to this and you're going, you know, those things that you keep calling sin, I'm kind of into those things. I kind of like my sin. I, I don't really know if I'm ready to give that stuff up. I would challenge you to ask this question of yourself and stay plugged in with us throughout this series. What if, what if, what if, what if Jesus has something better for you? What if Jesus truly does have your best interest in mind? What if Jesus really does have something far better for you than you could possibly imagine? And I'm telling you, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to you to explore the answer to that question.